From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. It's been a huge year in federal politics. The election campaign and a change of government have been followed by intense activity as Anthony Albanese makes his mark on the prime ministership at home and abroad. Meanwhile, opposition leader Peter Dutton, in the job that some describe as the toughest in politics, looks to how to rebuild from what was a shattering defeat for the coalition. For both leaders, next year will be challenging, with issues ranging from the cost of living pressures to the referendum on The Voice. In this, our final podcast for the year, we bring you interviews with the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader. Anthony Albanese, thanks for being with us today. Could we start with your priorities for 2023, just the main three or four priorities? Uh, A big priority will be implementing the reforms that were put in place. So cheaper childcare comes in on July 1. The National Reconstruction Fund will be established, creating Jobs and Skills Australia, the legislation's been passed, uh, the cheaper medicines. So all of those measures, getting the implementation part of that right. But secondly, in the second half of the year, of course, we'll have the referendum on constitutional change to recognise a voice to our national parliament for Indigenous people. Now, the energy legislation is passing Parliament today, but wouldn't it have been simpler, less complicated, to just have imposed a super profits tax? Yes, that would have involved a broken promise, but people would have probably accepted that in the extraordinary circumstances we're in. Well, it would have been simpler, and certainly all matters were considered, but we think we've got the balance right here. A temporary price cap of $12 for gas and $125 for coal will ensure that the worst impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and these global price spikes that we're seeing impacting households and businesses can be alleviated. And that combined with support for households who are most in need I think presents a package that received the support of state and territory governments and will receive the support of the Parliament today. Now, the energy policy and your changes to industrial relations have strained the relationship with business in these early days of the government. Are you concerned about that? We have good relations with the business community and I note that while the industrial relations changes were being debated in the Parliament, I attended the Australian Industry Group, I had an hour of questions after I addressed their dinner function at their national conference. And uh, I received one question about the industrial relations legislation and eight questions about other matters. I also addressed the Australian Chamber of Commerce in the Great Hall here in Parliament House, literally the night before the industrial relations changes uh, were going through the Parliament. So I'm very confident that We'll continue to have a constructive relationship. I met with APIA yesterday, uh, the major energy companies. We had constructive dialogue. Uh, Constructive dialogue doesn't mean you always agree. It does mean, though, that the door is always open and you're prepared to listen and prepared to act where you can reach agreement. And 
that is what my government will be characterised by going forward. Now, you've obviously had a, a successful debut as Prime Minister on the international stage, notably this time seen a, a thaw in the relationship with, with China, which is also part of uh, China's wider international policy as well. Do you expect that we'll see some relaxation of China's trade restrictions on Australia anytime soon? Well, I'm hopeful that any of the barriers to normal economic activity are removed and that we have stronger economic relations. China's our major economic partner. And I think in coming weeks, you will see further measures and activities which indicate a much improved relationship, which is in the interests of both of our countries, but importantly as well, is in the interests of peace and security in the region. So are you indicating there you think something might happen on trade in the next few weeks? Well, I'm hoping that there'll be further indications of an improvement in the relationship and uh, we'll see how that plays out. On the trade field? Well, we'll see how that plays out uh, over the next uh, coming weeks. You made some strong comments recently on the question of Julian Assange saying it was really time to draw a line under this. Are there any signs of progress or were you just stating a position of principle? Well, I have raised the issue with the US administration and raised Australia. They are consistent. My comments that I made as Prime Minister in the Parliament are consistent with the comments I made as the leader of the Labor Party from opposition. I do not see what a constructive purpose is served from the ongoing incarceration of Julian Assange. Uh, I do believe that enough is enough and that this issue should be brought to a close and I'll continue to argue constructively through diplomatic means to achieve that objective. But are you hopeful? Well, I, I am certainly cognizant of how complex and difficult these issues are, so I, I don't want to do anything other than continue to act diplomatically to put the view on behalf of Australia to our friends in the United States that many Australians care about this issue and certainly my argument is it is difficult to see no matter what views people have about Julian Assange and I certainly am not arguing the merits of of his activity Uh, What I say, though, is that at a time when Chelsea Manning, of course, is is able to participate freely in in US society, now uh, the Assange saga has gone on for a long period of time and it is time it be brought to a close. Now, you mentioned the voice referendum, of course, is one of the big things for next year. Are you confident that if the voice is passed, it will in fact make closing the gap more attainable? And in what way do you think it will do that? I'm absolutely confident that is the objective. The voice is about recognising if we're going to make a practical difference going forward, We know that where Indigenous Australians feel a sense of ownership over decisions, where they're consulted about programs that have a direct impact on them, then you get better outcomes. And we see that in practical ways through the Rangers program, through justice reinvestment programs, 
through wherever Indigenous people are actually involved in the decision-making, you get better practical outcomes. We are now 122 years old as a federation. We have tried doing things from Canberra or from state capitals, seeking to make decisions on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The successful programs have been ones that have directly consulted them and had their input. And that is what the objective is here, is to make a difference, as well as, of course, to make a difference for all Australians to be able to be proud of the fact that we share this continent with the oldest continuous culture on Earth. And the third improvement will, of course, be the way that Australia is perceived internationally will be much more positive if this referendum is successful as just a step on the path to reconciliation. We have, of course, had elected bodies before, going right back to Gough Whitlam's time. How will this one be different in its effectiveness? Well, this body will encourage that direct consultation where matters affect Indigenous people, be it their education, health, housing, incarceration rates and justice issues. All of these issues are ones that we need to make progress on. And I'm I'm very confident as well that the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in our national birth certificate, our constitution, will be an important step in showing respect for First Nations people but also in lifting up the whole nation. I think it is an opportunity for a moment of national unity, which we should seize. The Indigenous people have made a very gracious offer, really. This is not a big ask. This is a gracious offer of a hand outstretched, which should be met by non-Indigenous Australians. And we should walk forward together uh, in the journey of reconciliation. That's what's on the table. That's what can be seized uh, with a referendum being successful in the second half of next year. When will you announce the precise date or don't you know that yet? We'll continue to consult on those issues. I I also want to see as broad as possible support. Uh, I want to see that broad support politically. Uh, We already have support from the major business organisations, from the trade union movement, from... Uh, organisations, be they the the National Basketball Association, the Australian Football League, uh, NRL, Cricket Australia, major sporting organisations. We have support from major cultural organisations as well. And I want to see as broad a possible a support. Uh, I deliberately am being inclusive. I'm not trying to be prescriptive for those who say, we want every bit of detail It's not my proposal. It's not the government's proposal. It needs to be the Australian people's proposal, which is then adopted, which is why we are prepared to consult continually, even with those who say uh, that they've made a decision like the National Party. My door's open for consultation and for trying to get as broad a support as possible. Now, the government won't be funding the yes and no campaigns, but will you be travelling the country campaign style to sell the yes case in the 
weeks immediately before the vote? Uh, I certainly will be campaigning very strongly for a, a yes vote. I think it is important. It's a moment for Australia. And I, I already, of course, recommit in speeches that I give at the beginning when I do the acknowledgement of country, I consistently uh, will reaffirm the view of the importance of recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution with a voice to parliament. Now, before we get to the uh, voice vote, of course, uh, we come to the budget, and budget preparation has already begun with the expenditure review committee meeting. What are your early priorities for this budget? Will cost of living pressures be one of those priorities? And how much will inflation fighting be at the centre of this budget? Well, we need to do both. We need to look at the macroeconomic measures, including the inflationary pressure that has arisen out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is a global phenomenon that we're dealing with, the higher energy prices leading to higher inflation rates. Inflation can be seen as a tax on the poor. It impacts those people who can least afford to pay higher prices. And that is why it's an equity issue as well. So the issues are linked. So we have been very careful, for example, in how we have framed the energy price relief to do it in a way which is providing that cost of living benefit for people at the same time doing it in a way which is non-inflationary. So we could have gone down the road of cash payments, that's something the former government undoubtedly would have done, but uh, we chose not to do that because by reducing people's power bills rather than paying cash and the bills staying the same, you have a deflationary impact compared with the other option. Do you think we could see this budget in balance or nearly in balance? Oh, I think uh, that wasn't the indication at the time that we brought down the budget in October. We, we inherited. But there's a lot of talk about it since. Well, well, we inherited a trillion dollars of debt. We inherited a budget with red ink as far as the eye could see. And we did that in a, a context of a government that we replaced that didn't have a plan for fiscal policy uh, we know that the budget that was introduced earlier this year in March had a whole lot of payments which assisted to add to inflationary pressures that all ran out, of course, as soon as people had voted after the election. So we will have a responsible budget that will be uh, framed to put that downward pressure on inflation, but we have inherited structural problems uh, with the budget. There's no question about that, and that is something which, over a period of time, we need to be mindful of as we frame not just this budget, but the ones beyond. So in that context, do you agree that at some point, this term or next term, there will have to be tax reform? Well, we are examining the the budget in a careful way. There are, of course, some, some tax changes envisaged for the budget that come in in 2024. They kick in at uh, a modest amount, contrary to some of the commentary of $45,000. 
But we will, of course, uh, we haven't changed our position on those measures and we want to make sure... But you might. No, well, we haven't changed our position on those matters. What we have said about doing is making sure that we've restrained budget spending. We got rid of some of the waste and rorts that were in the budget. We'll continue to search for savings, but we'll also be responsible. I think one of the... The best things that we did in the budget in October for the economy, certainly not necessarily for politics, but for the economy, was to put back 99% of the revenue gains over the two years went to the budget bottom line. That compares with what occurred under the former government where they spent a large portion of any revenue gains that were coming in. Uh, We'll frame the budget. There's a considerable time to do it. We've been prioritising, of course, the immediate energy crisis resulting from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, a year ago, of course, we had another wave of COVID. This Christmas, COVID is still killing quite a lot of people each week. Yet, under changes the government has just announced, people will need a doctor's referral for a PCR test. What do you say to critics who believe that we're treating COVID too casually these days? Uh, If you look at the measures that were actually put in place by the government, they are about targeting support for the most vulnerable in the community, additional support for PPL, additional support for those in aged care, targeting that support on the basis of health advice and what we are moving towards as well as making sure that those people who do need assistance, we agreed just last week to extend, for example, the support for people working in areas like disability care, aged care, to continue to provide that additional support for them should they contract COVID. We know that COVID remains very much a a real issue. And uh, I was reminded of that, obviously, last week when uh, I contracted COVID for the second time. We will continue to act on the basis of best advice, but we couldn't continue to have forever uh, a situation where people shut down our economic activities. That was occurring. People do want to go and participate in work but also participate in activities uh, like going to the football and going to concerts and people are engaging. Uh, People do need to take advice of course and, and they should do so. So on another related but different front The government's also under criticism for cutting back the um, number of psychology consultations under Medicare. What's your response to that? Well, we're making sure that people who need this support can get it. And we're continuing to do that. We want to make sure that those who most need support, because there was evidence there as well that what was happening is that some people were getting additional consultations while others couldn't get access to any at all. We need to deal with these issues in a way that ensures that those people who most need support. I realise that this is a difficult issue. All of these issues are difficult, but we continue to take advice and we continue to make sure that support's available. Uh, We, in recent times, have extended considerable additional support 
running into the billions of dollars to deal with these ongoing issues. Now, I know that you've declined to comment on various recent developments in relation to Brittany Higgins, but is it not a legitimate question for taxpayers to want to know how much of their money has been agreed to be given to Ms Higgins in a settlement this week? I have no intention of commenting on these matters. Uh, I was not involved in, in any of those deliberations. They were legal matters dealt with appropriately under the law and uh, the issue was, uh, was settled, but I wasn't a party to any of those decisions. Recently, the post-mortem on Labor's uh, election performance was released. And uh, while, of course, uh, that performance was very positive in its outcome and indeed its conduct, there were some red flags raised. And one of those was that the Labor vote in heartland seats, especially in Melbourne, but also to some extent in Sydney, was in danger of eroding. Are you concerned about that and what's your strategy for dealing with it? Well, we want to get more votes across the board. Uh, That is our intention, whether they be in seats that historically have been held by the Labor Party or whether it be in the changed political environment where we've seen us hold a, a seat like Higgins that we have never held that area since Federation. So... Uh, We achieved our objective, uh, which was to have a majority Labor government. I'll be working each and every day in the lead-up to the 2025 election to make sure that we secure a majority going forward. The bells are ringing, so can I just ask in a line, what are you doing for Christmas? Uh, I will be at Bill Cruz Exodus Foundation at Ashfield. I go every year to help it's a, it's a wonderful day, helping to feed literally a, a couple of thousand people who are homeless, some of whom might just have nowhere to go in terms of family, and I find it incredibly rewarding, and uh, I think Bill Cruz does a wonderful job, and I'm very much looking forward to that. All the best to you, and not forgetting Toto. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michelle. Toto will, for sure, get a very nice present. Peter Dutton, thanks for joining us today. Could you start by telling us your priorities for the new year, perhaps three or four main things? Well, Michelle, clearly uh, there's still great uncertainty in our region and people worry about uh, uh, what might happen in the South China Sea or with Taiwan, but in the Indo-Pacific more generally. And we've taken our approach in opposition very seriously. That is to support the government where it's in our national interest to do so, particularly on international affairs. And we'll continue that because ultimately the security of our nation is paramount. Uh, We also obviously have a significant issue in relation to cost of living. I think that's the biggest pressure on families, uh, the increasing costs around energy, uh, around interest rates, inflation projected to peak at 8%, a likely recession in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, We have uh, very significant economic headwinds facing Australians and families over the course of the next 12 months. 
that's a very significant uh, issue for us to, to firstly hold the government to account on their election promises, but also uh, to, to be constructive in the debate and a, a continuation of uh, formulation of our own policy in a number of areas, uh, including in relation to nuclear energy, which will give us the ability to firm up those renewables. Do you agree that to win government, you need to regain at least some of those teal seats that the Libs lost? Yes. And how are you going to do that? And how are you going to bridge this gulf between the priorities of voters in those seats and the somewhat different priorities often of voters in outer suburban seats? Well, I'm a different uh, leader to to my predecessors. And I said on the first day of coming into this job that we're not conservatives, we're not uh, progressives, we're, we're liberals. And I intend to live that in our values, in our policy and At the next election, we'll have a very significant offering of policy, which will distinguish us quite markedly from the Labor Party. We'll have uh, a very sound plan to restore our budgetary position because Labor will continue, as they always do when they're in government, to to tax and spend. And we will have policies that appeal to people both in the teal seats and in regional seats, in outer metropolitan seats, but across the country. And The economy, given the cost of living pressures, is going to be a very significant issue by the time of the next election. I don't believe the Prime Minister can live up to the promises that he made at the last election, particularly his promise to reduce electricity prices by $275. So there will be a lot for people in teal seats and elsewhere to consider during the course uh, of the next election. Anthony Albanese essentially won the election by being a small target and waiting for the government to lose, as it were, an unpopular prime minister and so on. Will you be a small target or a big target in 2025 as an opposition? Well, Michelle, I believe very strongly that time served in Parliament gives you a better grounding to lead and to be successful uh, in that leadership role. And I've been in the Parliament for 21 years. Uh, I have a good sense of balance and proportion, and there does need to be a balance of risk-taking. There needs to be an element of the government getting it wrong. There needs to be uh, an opportunity for us to get the policies right, and I want to bring that experience to bear in the next election campaign. And I believe that as a result of that, we won't be small target, um, but we're not going to be silly about policies. I mean, he went from one extreme under Bill Shorten in 2019 uh, to the other under Anthony Albanese in, in 2022. So we have a balance to strike, and, uh, and I'll be making those judgment calls as we get closer to the next election. One big loss for the Liberals, obviously, at the last election was Josh Frydenberg. Would you like to see him run again? And if so, would you like to see him run in Kuyong or would it be acceptable to you for him to perhaps have a go at Higgins? Michelle, I've said privately to Josh and I've said it publicly as well that I I very much want him to come back into the parliament. I believe uh, his best prospect is in the seat of Kuyong because it's where his home is, it's where he's established himself, it's where he's built up a following. And frankly, you know, having met all of the independents and, you know, had had an assessment of how I think they will play in their electorates, I think Monique Ryan is the person that will have the least ability to form a connection and a bond with the people of Kuyong. I think effectively she's a Green and that's probably the kindest thing you could say about her politics. I don't think there's an affinity with the people of Kuyong, and I think there will be significant buyer's remorse, and increasingly so over the course of the next two and a half years. I've no doubt the people of Kuyong wanted to send a message to the Liberal Party and probably to Scott Morrison as well at the last election in May. 
I don't think that they wanted to vote out Josh Frydenberg, who had been an effective local member, a very effective treasurer and deputy leader of our party. And I think his best prospects and our best prospects are uh, if he runs in Kuyong, and I've strongly encouraged him, as I say, publicly and privately to do that. What, what about if he decided to uh, give it a go in Higgins? Well, as I say, I, I think his best chance is in Kuyong. Um, it's always difficult to jumping seats. And uh, I think just given the credibility that he's established locally, the hard work put into his You had a bad experience in that regard, I seem to remember, a while ago. Yes, well, n- none of us should have short memories in politics. <laughs> now, the Liberals talk about uh, needing to get more women candidates, and no doubt that will be a point strongly made when your post-election review comes out very shortly. But what will you actually do, as opposed to just saying we need more women? Are quotas, for example, on your table? Michelle, uh, a couple of points. I mean, one, as you know, uh, my whole working life, I've worked in a determined fashion, I'll put it that way, to protect the rights of women and children in particular. Um, I've taken that fight up through very many different debates in the parliament. And as the Minister for Home Affairs, I continue that work through the establishment of the Centre to Counter Child Exploitation. So I don't have a problem with women and I'm not perceived to. I have a very significant track record and I'm happy to be compared against uh, the Prime Minister or anybody else. Uh, I do want more women in the Parliament uh, and, as you know, I've got uh, the same number of women in my shadow cabinet as, uh, as the Prime Minister does in his cabinet. Uh, in terms of the party, it's it's easy for Anthony Albanese to ring up the branch president in, um, you know, in, in the case of Christina Keneally and impose her as a candidate uh, in that local electorate. I can't do that in the Liberal Party because our people aren't brought up through the union movement. They're brought up with a, with a very strong philosophical view in relation to choice, and it's a, a significant value proposition for them when they join our party that they have a say at a local level in relation to the choice of candidates. Uh, I don't have a union movement where women candidates can go back if they're unsuccessful to receive a job. I don't have links to the industry super funds that allow them to campaign full-time, get a wage full-time get a car and mobile phone full-time whilst they campaign, and if they're unsuccessful, go back into that job. Women who will be thinking about running for the Liberal Party at the next election, who are in small business, for example, will be thinking, how on earth can I afford to spend time away from my business? How can I continue in business if I lose the election, if I've got government contracts in Victoria, for example? Um, These aren't uh, contemplations for uh, Labor Party candidates. So it's a no, but the party could impose quotas if it decided to. No, we, we, we can't. We can't, Michelle. Um, I, I mean, let's be very clear about it. The Liberal Party doesn't have a culture of imposing quotas. I want to see more women. I've made that very clear to the state presidents. I've made it very clear to pre-selection bodies. But in the Liberal Party, our branch members have the say as to who they want as their local candidate. And generally, that is somebody who has worked very hard on campaigns in the local electorate over a long period of time. I don't want delayed pre-selections. I want the pre-selections to be dealt with quickly. And we're a democratic party. And as I say, in the Labor Party, the Prime Minister can impose candidates and the local members can complain about it, as they did in relation to Christina Keneally. But ultimately, the position that prevails is the position taken by their federal executive. We don't have that culture uh, or, uh, or, that, uh, or that arrangement in relation to our branches. Now, your job hasn't been made any easier in the last few months by a lot of publicity surrounding Scott Morrison. Do you think that Scott Morrison will leave Parliament in the next few months, early in the new year, and are you trying to get him to do so? 
Well, Michelle, uh, that's an issue for Scott, as it's always difficult for former Prime Ministers, as we saw with uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd and uh, even in John Howard's circumstance. So there's, you know, there's a special latitude given to former Prime Ministers uh, after an election loss, uh, and the timing is entirely a matter for him, and that is something I would leave to him. But there's no question in my mind that by the time of the next election, people won't be voting on uh, Scott Morrison and the performance of uh, his government. It will be on their view of the Australian Labor Party, what's happened with their cost of living, whether the Prime Minister's delivered on his promise to provide a $275 power bill cut, whether he's lived up to his other promises and whether they believe that we've got the policies to not only clean up Labor's mess, but also to lay out a successful agenda for them and their families for the period from 2025 on. Well, talking about cost of living and energy, you're in Canberra today for the special sitting on the government's energy package. Now, we know you've been very critical of that package, so let's not revisit those criticisms, but... What actually should the government be doing if you think it's not doing the right thing? Yes, obviously prices might be helped by opening up more supply, as you say, but that doesn't deal with the here and now. That's years away. So if you were in government, what would you be doing in the here and now? Michelle, I I wouldn't have in the October budget put money into the budget to fund litigators and activists to take actions against the new supply of gas into the system. That's what the government did. The government's had six months to work on a deal or a plan. They had much longer than that. They had years in opposition to work up what it was that they wanted to do. They promised that they had a plan to deliver $275 price cut. It's not delivered. They can't even tell us the definition of a small business as to uh, which small businesses will receive any support. Uh, They can't tell us which families will receive support and which won't. Uh, we've made it clear that uh, we're, we would like to see the bill split to vote in favour of the relief being provided to families and that we want to vote against the market intervention because that's going to have all sorts of perverse outcomes which will result in higher energy costs and that's the deliberate decision of the government. They're playing politics on the bill uh, and refusing to split it and that's regrettable but we've made our position very clear. Now, one of the big things for you next year will be uh, what the Liberal Party decides to do about the voice. Is the most likely option, given the national stance and divisions in your own ranks, that you let people go their own way, or could you still support it? And roughly, when do you think you will tell us, or the party will tell us, what stand it's going to take? Well, Michelle, it's a a really, really important issue, as you know. Reconciliation is something that we all take seriously, and I don't think there's anyone of ill intent here. There's nobody that I I speak to on either side of politics and over many years uh, that want anything but a better outcome for Indigenous Australians. The question is whether the voice is the best vehicle to deliver that, whether it will provide the outcomes that people believe it will, whether there's a better model, there's a better form of words. What happens when there's a difference in the voice of local Indigenous elders compared to the voice of the elected elders coming out of Sydney or Melbourne? Uh, you know, there are, there are many reasonable questions that the Prime Minister should answer. And that's why a lot of Indigenous leaders now are getting quite angry with the Prime Minister because he's dumped the issue out there. The timing, obviously, was to, uh, to have it out there around Gama. And no details been provided since. And I think the Prime Minister can win people to his side of the argument uh, if he provides detail, because in essence, you know, people instinctively are supportive of a model, but not if they don't know the detail. So he could win you if he provides detail? 
Well, I, I, I've asked for the detail. It's not forthcoming. There's no side of it. And I'm starting to think that it's a deliberate political tactic that the Prime Minister's decided not to release the detail. And as you've seen, Frank Brennan and others uh, write recently, uh, I mean, it's quite quite bewildering that the Prime Minister won't release the detail and damaging to, to the case. I, I, you know, Equally, I want to see a quick turnaround uh, in the assistance being provided to families on the ground in areas like Alice Springs. I've met the Prime Minister on a number of occasions in relation to what I think is, is an urgent and pressing issue in that community and surrounding communities. And, and there are many ways that we would support on a bipartisan basis. But to change the constitution, it can't be changed by legislation if it doesn't work out. So we need to make sure that what people are voting on is properly informed and they can make the decision in, in a rational way instead of saying to people, as the Prime Minister is at the moment, that you can vote on the Saturday and we'll give you the detail on the Monday. That, that just doesn't fly. So when will we get your decision? Well, we'll, we'll make a, a decision once we've seen the detail and once our party rooms had a discussion I've been respectful in listening to the views for and against the voice from people for whom I have a great deal of respect, and I hope that the debate can be conducted in a respectful way. It's legitimate to be in favour of the voice, and it's legitimate to have an opinion that the voice is not the best way to deliver reconciliation, that there are other ways. So our party room will come together right early in the new year, and we'll be able to have that discussion at that point. We know you're tight for time, so just very quickly, a couple of things to finish up. The New South Wales election is approaching. You didn't campaign in Victoria. Will you be on the hustings with your New South Wales counterpart? Well, Michelle, I've always been of the view, frankly, that people are smart enough to know the difference between state and federal issues. And I go in and out of most states and territories, frankly, uh, every month. In Victoria, we had a situation there where a very bad government was re-elected, unfortunately, and I think people in Victoria are going to be paying a price for that over the course of the next four years, and I'll be doing everything within my power to make sure that Dominic Perrottet is re-elected for the sake of people in New South Wales and the economic future of that state. I don't want to see jobs lost under a Labor government. And you will appear with him? Well, we'll make those uh, decisions closer to the election time. And uh, if there's a reason for me to be there, I will. Otherwise, I think, frankly, at a federal level, it's a contest between Anthony Albanese and myself. At a state level, it's a contest between Dominic Perrottet and the Labor leader there. Just finally, what are you doing for Christmas? Well, Michelle, I'm hoping that it's a quiet period with family and our kids are getting a bit older. So time together is precious. Once they get their licence, they're on the road and catching up with their friends and it's hard to find that time together. So I'm really looking forward to just a bit of downtime around the pool or reading a book, watching a bit of cricket and a bit of time at the beach. But most importantly, just being able to spend time with my wife and kids and our broader family. And that means we'll be able to recharge the batteries and be back ready for action early next year. Sounds good. Peter Dutton, thanks for talking with the Conversations Politics podcast. Thanks to my producer, Mikey Burnett, and we'll be back with interviews early in the new year. Meanwhile, happy Christmas to all our listeners. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.